Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Virginia Lee, BioCentury Associate Editor, and today I am joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. That should be Dr. Fishburn. Um, and it's Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, I head Translation and Clinical Development Coverage. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra. They will be presenting Symphony for Science, an online event with music and words for Next Step, supporting people with rare diseases, cancer, and HIV. The event is this Thursday, December 17th at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and you can register at symphonyforscience.org. Now, today we will be speaking with Lauren about CAR-T therapies that are moving into earlier lines of treatment. Despite the fact that companies and payers are still working out some of the market access barriers for the modality. But first, I'd like to turn to Steve to discuss last week's advisory committee meeting on Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine and the FDA's subsequent authorization of that vaccine on Friday. Steve, let's start with the meeting. What questions did the committee address and what questions are still left open? To me, it, it isn't really so much a, a, an issue of questions. It's an issue that the meeting was just a massive missed opportunity. Sure, they voted on the question of whether there's enough evidence to support emergency use authorization of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and they voted 17 to 4 with one abstention that it should be. But reporters and, the, and members of the public who tuned into this adcom and haven't watched adcoms in the past misunderstand their purpose. They focus on the vote as if it's an election or a sporting event or something like that. But really what's important about adcoms is the discussion. And that's what didn't happen at this meeting. Most of the meeting was taken up with canned presentations of data that the committee should have read in advance, things that were in their briefing books and things that were available to the public. And then when it came time to the discussion, it was very brief. The key thing is after everyone voted, the normal procedure in advisory committees is for each participant to explain why they voted the way that they did. That's really important. They didn't do that at this adcom. They just cut it off then, and they missed a big opportunity. They missed the opportunity for the people who voted in favor of it to go on the record as saying why they believe that there was a rigorous review, why they believe that this is safe and effective. And they missed an opportunity for the people who voted against it to say, why they did, we're left, we're left guessing, and that really isn't a good situation. So Steve, um, what are you gonna expect this week? Do you think they uh, will have a better run of a meeting this week? I expect so. I think that they probably heard the criticism, hopefully from me and, um, and, and from others. And it's gonna be hard for them to fill the time up again with canned presentations about the epidemiology of COVID or the distribution plans because they had that last week. So I would hope that that there will be more discussion. There's also, I think, more data about the Moderna trial to discuss because they did a better job of enrolling a more diverse population. So there's more to say about the efficacy and safety spread across different groups. Now that the vaccine has been authorized, the attention will now shift to Operation Warp Speed's procurement and deployment strategies. How has that process been going and what should we be expecting there? Oh, huge surprise. There's politics. There's controversy. People don't think that it's being done quite right. This is going to be a, a point of contention for months until there's a lot of um, vaccine available. One of the things that I've written about is a dispute which has been mischaracterized to some extent. 
over how they should deploy the Pfizer vaccine. So it's a two-dose vaccine. And what Operation Warp Speed is doing is they're deploying half of the doses, actually less than half of the doses, they're keeping some in reserve, less than half of the doses in an initially with the idea that then they, they have to have the second dose on hand that they can give in three weeks. There's some people who have criticized this, former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member Scott Gottlieb has, has criticized it. And he's criticized it because he believes that there's a very little chance that Pfizer won't have the vaccine on hand to give the second dose. In fact, they already have uh, most of it in the production process. So he thinks that what should happen is they should just get as much out there as quickly as possible, especially because there's good data showing that there's protection that happens after the first dose. You don't have to wait till the second dose. So he wants to get as much of it out there and start helping people as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, this has been misinterpreted by some people. The governor of Florida, DeSantos, uh, made statements over the weekend saying that he thinks that people should only get one dose and that you can double the amount that people get by doing that. That's not what, what Gottlieb had been uh, advocating, and it's not what anybody responsible would advocate based on the, the data that's out there. I think another thing that's really going to make this probably even worse is that we now know that some of the other vaccines actually aren't on track, and so it's going to be even longer. One example is the GSK and Sanofi vaccine, which is, uh, I think they were hoping to have data by the middle of next year, and that's been put back to the end of next year. So we're going to sort of be relying, at least in the foreseeable future, for the mRNA vaccines, and they need ramping up, right, in terms of production to get them really distributed broadly. I think, Steve, tell me, I, I think a lot of people think the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to get approved, but we've also seen problems there. I think with the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, that it's going to be authorized in Europe, in the UK, widely in developing countries. I don't think that it will be authorized quickly in the United States. But, and it's a real contrast there between really the excellence of the execution on the part of Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna, AstraZeneca, which is, has fallen short. And it's fallen short on the really the key area. I think that the, the most the second most important thing in drug development, the first one, of course, is getting drugs or vaccines that are effective. But the second most important thing is proving that science, it's a pursuit of the truth. And they have not done a very good job of demonstrating its safety and effectiveness in a robust way. And that's, that's really going to be a problem. The other thing I'd say is that a lot of people are going to be looking to the Janssen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is supposed to be a one-shot vaccine. Data for that could be coming out um, in January. Uh, that's going to be really important. It's going to be important for the world because they're planning on uh, ramping up huge um, volume and they've reserved uh, very large volumes of it for the uh, developing uh, world. It'll also be important for the United States because it would top up the number of doses that are available. We've got about 100 million from um, Pfizer. We might have eventually as many as 200 million from Moderna, but that's going to take some time. If you have the J&J &J vaccine coming in February, that would uh, really accelerate the rate of um, vaccination in the United States. I think it'd also be much more important for the rest of the world, especially since it's a single dose vaccination if it works. 
Yeah, and I just want to make one more point about this, because I do think the BioNTech Pfizer study was done very well, and Moderna certainly executed. But we can see that lots of other big companies or several other big companies aren't. So GSK and Sanofi ran into what is effectively a formulation problem. Each of the three of these have got different issues. And AstraZeneca's was, well, I guess it was problems in the way the clinical trials were executed. They had some manufacturing issues and some dosing issues. And now we've also got the University of Queensland in Australia with CSL. And theirs is really a drug design problem where they'd used a portion of HIV, an innocuous portion of that virus to construct, I think it was to construct the antigen. But in all events, it's created cross-reactivity with HIV testing, which means I guess they have to go back to the drawing board on that one. It's not simple to make these things, but certainly some of the problems could have been avoided. I, although mm-hmm. I, 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 w- I should just say, on the other hand, I was speaking to a couple of industry leaders last week and asking them, like, how lucky did we get with the mRNA ones? Their answer to me was, this is not luck. This is mRNA. It's that good. This is thanks to that modality. You know, obviously, there's always an element of luck in execution and so on. They, they really said a big vote of confidence in that actual modality. And we're damn lucky to have it because none of the tried and true modalities for vaccines have come through with the kind of speed and efficacy that mRNA has. The other one to mention, I think, is the Novavax vaccine, which is a subunit protein vaccine that's adjuvanted. People have a lot of confidence in the vaccine, but they've also run into some manufacturing glitches, and it isn't completely clear that how quickly they're going to be able to overcome that and how quickly they're going to be able to actually ramp up production if, in fact, their trials are successful. All right, well, we, we will continue to cover all of that data as they come in. I'd like to turn over to Lauren now, who wrote a story last week on how CAR-T developers are moving into first and second line settings for cancer. Lauren, you mentioned in your story that developing cancer therapies first in late line settings and then moving them earlier is standard practice given that risk tolerance is higher in patients with fewer therapeutic options, and we're seeing that with CAR-Ts now. So what makes that process different and more difficult for CAR-T therapies? CAR-Ts have have had safety issues. I mean, any cancer drug has safety issues, but the cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicity have been big issues with these therapies in the late-line settings. And they also come with really high costs and really complex delivery and manufacturing. I think those are two things that some of the standard modalities don't necessarily face to that extent when you're thinking about moving them forward into earlier line settings. So if you have a patient who hasn't been treated with many therapies before, the fact that you could have these dangerous side effects could be a bigger issue. When I spoke with people about the safety issues for moving earlier, the thought is that you may not see the same level of toxicity that you see in the patients who are more sick because the more cancer cells and the more rapidly they're dividing, the greater chance that you're going to have these CAR T cells causing these types of toxicities. We don't necessarily have that data yet showing that safety is not going to be as big of an issue in patients who aren't as sick as it is in the, the patients who've been treated with four or five, six other therapies before this point. What hasn't necessarily been sorted out as well yet either is the access issue. So there has been progress on that, but it's different getting a therapy to patients who have no other options, getting that paid for than it necessarily is if there are 10 other therapies that a patient could try. 
one of the things that strikes me about CAR T therapies that's also different from other therapies, I interviewed Steve Rosenberg at NCI years ago, who was a father of all of this technology. One of the things he pointed out to me that differentiates it is that it seems to be effective regardless of the stage of disease. Even people with cancer that was quite far advanced respond well to CAR-T therapies. It's not like other therapies where, what he was saying at that time anyway, where the sooner that you get to people, the better they are necessarily. Obviously, nobody wants to live with cancer a minute longer than they have to, but that I thought that was an interesting observation. I don't know if it's held up over the years. This was several years ago when he told me that. Well, I think we're just starting to see that because we saw the first data from a first-line setting at ASH this year. So I don't think that too many patients have been treated who aren't that advanced in their disease at this point. But it seems to be holding up. What we're also seeing is the long-term durability data come up, which I think is really interesting because that's one of the most important things when you're treating cancer. And, and we've got four-year data now showing that these CAR-Ts and patients who are responding, they seem to keep responding. That kind of makes the case for moving it earlier too, I think. That's interesting because I was speaking to a pharma company recently about deals in oncology. And one of the things that we've been thinking about and observing is that for deal making, in the inflection point or the value creation point is often thought of as a sort of phase two data traditionally. And in some modalities like CAR-Ts, cell therapies, maybe gene therapies, that's moving earlier. So with phase one, you start to get some level of efficacy. They said the big sort of caveat to that is that you don't have durability data with phase one. You know, I think if the genre, if the whole class is starting to actually settle the concern of durability, then that might also change people's thinking in terms of the valuation of a therapy or proof of concept. When does that come in drug development? Lauren, I also wanted to ask you, how this jives with the other thing you've been reporting, which is that bispecific antibodies are starting to upstage, or as we say in the UK where I am right now, pip to the post, um, cell therapies. And so if you've got people first line, second line, do you think that bispecifics are just going to shove out CAR-Ts now? Would you, maybe you can just give us your overview on that. When you think about these earlier line settings, the, the difference between a CAR-T and a bispecific is that, in general, the CAR-Ts have been a little bit more effective. You're going to get slightly higher response rates in these. But do you go into these patients with a bispecific that also has a really good chance of working, or do you go right to the CAR-T? So I don't know how payers are going to necessarily respond. I don't know how physicians are going to respond, but it makes sense to me to go for a bispecific first. This is a modality that we know how to manufacture. You can do it at a cost that's a lot less than a CAR-T. You don't have to design a therapy that's specific for each patient, which is what you still have to do with these autologous CAR-Ts. It seems like every company has a bispecific now. It's becoming a very standard modality. So Lauren, as, as CAR-T developers are moving into earlier settings, what indications are they starting with and how do those data look so far? It sounds like the general strategy is not to just go for every newly diagnosed patient. It makes sense that these companies are going for the patients who are at a high risk of not responding to the, the standard of care in the first and second line. 
the the companies that are most advanced with CAR T's all seem to be taking that strategy. They're going for the diffuse B cell lymphoma with the CD19 CAR T's in the patients who are high risk. In the second line setting, a lot of these companies are looking to put their CD19 CAR T's head to head against stem cell transplant. We're also seeing I think there's one BCMA CAR-T that's also looking earlier, but the trend is definitely see how this works in the patients who don't have other options first and, and then go from there. And what do these companies need to show in the first and second line setting to make the case for better reimbursement given that market access issues are still an issue today? If you're looking at the patients who are unlikely to respond to better therapies, I guess it's just going to come down to how the response rates look. And this is about the budget impact to the payers. And that's not just that's not just response rates. That's how does the cost of the CAR-T and, and all the associated costs of delivering that compare with the, the costs of, you know, a patient getting all of these other therapies first. All right. Thanks, Lauren. That is all we have time for today. This is our final episode of 2020, so we hope you have a wonderful holiday, and we'll be back in the new year. All of the podcasts are available at our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.